Before the episode, I want to share a quick word from sponsors of Think Like an Owner. The first is Live Oak Bank. Live Oak Bank is a seasoned SBA lender focused on search funds, independent sponsors, private equity firms, and individuals looking to acquire small companies. Live Oak has closed billions of dollars in SBA financing and is actively looking to help more small company investors across the country. If you are in the process of acquiring a company or thinking about starting a search, contact Lisa Forrest or Heather Anderson directly to start a conversation or go to liveoakbank.com think. The second is Hood & Strong LLP. Hood & Strong is a CPA firm with a long history of working with search funds and private equity firms on diligence, assurance, tax services, and more. Hood & Strong is highly skilled in working with search funds, providing quality of earnings and due diligence services during the search, along with assurance and tax services post-acquisition. They offer a unique way to approach acquisition diligence and manage costs effectively. To learn more about how Hood & Strong can help your search, acquisition, and beyond, please email one of their partners, Jerry Joe at jzhou at hoodstrong.com. The third is Barrel. Barrel is a digital marketing agency that helps companies create revenue-generating websites, emails, and marketing campaigns. Clients include L'Oreal, Scott's miracle Grow, Berries, and Smarty Pants Vitamins. Barrel has extensive experience working with venture capital and private equity firms to help audit, optimize, and grow their portfolio brands. To learn more about Barrel, visit barrelny.com slash alex or email newbiz, N-E-W-B-I-Z at barrelny.com and mention Think Like an Owner podcast. And now to the episode. Hello and welcome everyone. I'm Alex Bridgman and this is Think Like an Owner. This show seeks out conversations with business owners and private investors to learn how to acquire and run small companies with a special focus on search funds, micro-private equity, and permanent capital. You can learn more at alexbridgman.com podcast and follow me on Twitter at AEBridgman. And if you like the show, please leave a review and tell a friend to help more people find things like an owner. My guest, Aaron Green, founded a staffing company called Professional Staffing Group, or PSG, in 1996. He has grown it along with six other related companies to just shy of $100 million in revenue and 2,000 employees. Most of my guests operate small companies, and PSG of course started small, but I wanted to learn from an owner who had managed to scale a company and their role in it over a long period of time. Frequent listeners of Think Like an Owner may notice a connection to previous guest Jared Henderson, CEO of Assist Services. Aaron is an investor in that company, along with Tim Ludwig, who introduced me to both, and we chat briefly about the company near the end of our conversation. Over the course of the episode, we talk about hiring for growth, books and models for managing that have worked for Aaron, how he's learned to delegate, and how he spends his time today as his company has grown. I learned a lot from this conversation with Aaron, and I hope you walk away with a few lessons and insights too. Good to see you, Aaron. Thanks for joining us here. I'm excited to hear about PSG, and obviously it's a much bigger company than when you first founded it and started it when it was just you of course there's been a ton of growth there and i'm excited to hear about the different stages of your growth and how you evolved as a manager and ceo so i'd love to hear about your background and then early days with psg and then what you're working on today and how that growth path has gone for you thanks for having me i was excited to be able to share some stories with you i was looking forward to today for a bit i know it's been a little while since we first spoke Born and raised in the Boston area. I'm just about turning 52 now. So I grew up in and around Boston, went to Tufts University. And when I graduated Tufts University, I was a civil engineer. 
I put that to use right away by going into the recruiting industry. I'd been doing recruiting as a part-time job in school, and there was a recession back in the early 90s when I got out of school. So I sort of stuck with what I was doing and, and never really looked back. Got into the recruiting industry in 1990. And actually, I started in 88 while I was in school, and then 1990 is when I kind of went full-time at recruiting. And by 92, I decided that I had plenty of knowledge and wisdom acquired in those two years out of college and decided to start my own business. So this company called Commonwealth Resources was the first business that I started. That company is, is still in business today. I've got two partners in that business. Just bought out one of my partners, just retired actually, which is sort of an interesting sort of phase of life to be in, which is your colleagues are starting to retire. I thought that was always years and years away. But yeah, so started out in a company called Commonwealth Resources. And then, and as I said, that company is in business today. It was run by two of my partners. After about two years in that business, 1992, actually four years, in 1996, decided I wanted to do something within the recruiting industry, but that was a little bit different. Didn't really know a lot about the staffing and recruiting business. I was actually on an exercise bike at a gym that I went to back in 1996, and I was reading about this company called Kelly Services, which is one of the largest staffing companies in the world, and sort of they were being highlighted. It was in Fortune magazine, and I was, I was reading the article. I was like, I could do that. <laughs> so I am just sort of went about and started. And, and the only type of staffing I sort of knew about in the temp world was administrative staffing. The company didn't have a receptionist. I didn't, I'm not sure what made me qualified to place administrative professionals back at that point in time, but just sort of started trying, putting up ads and recruiting people and then calling companies and just kind of put one foot after the other and things got started and it stuck. It was one of those things like people were like, oh, like, did you do research? What did you look at? How did you figure out what you wanted to do? I was like, just kind of started. <laughs> Wasn't really sure what exactly what I was doing. But as I said, slowly but surely sort of figured things out and really built a nice business, I think. Do you remember getting your first customer? I do. And so it, it actually wasn't me. It was one of the people that worked in the business. And we had a very sophisticated prospecting plan for new business opened up the yellow pages and turned to A, which was the architects. <laughs> and then the, the firm, they're not currently a client and they haven't been for some time, but their name started obviously with A. So it was like pretty much you turned to open the yellow pages and it's like the first professional business that was in there. <laughs> and we acquired them as a client. But I, I sure do remember, probably wasn't the neatest, cleanest experience for the client. If I remember correctly, it took a couple of tries to get the placement right. But I, yeah, we placed an administrative assistant with this architectural firm and sort of figured that stuff out. And then by talking to more and more candidates who we were interviewing for placement, I uh, found other companies that were hiring and sort of just built off of things like just sort of networking in that fashion. I know very, very little about the staffing industry or how a staffing business works. Can you walk us through a little bit about how it's structured and what you do as a staffing business? The staffing business is really, really varied. There are companies that focus in one area of staffing, there are companies that focus more broadly across a number of different either industry verticals or position types. And it could be sort of everything from placing from sort of entry level or entry point type positions, let's say in call centers or distribution centers, to placing doctors in positions on a temporary or full-time basis. And I'm not sure why that's the exact spectrum, but it really runs the gamut in terms of sort of any position that's out there. There's probably a recruiting firm that specializes in it and focuses in it. The businesses I'm involved in, PSG is probably the least specialized, meaning we sort of orient ourselves around our clients. So we work with a lot of mid-sized companies in the Boston area. Sometimes those companies are global. 
and we provide staff to them around the world from the Boston office. In other cases, they're more just like colleges and universities or hospitals that are just sort of here in Boston. And we build custom staffing programs for mid-sized companies in the Boston area is what we do. We tend to provide services in not necessarily frontline positions at those companies, but more in the support role. So let's say like administrative or marketing or accounting and finance or technical type positions. And in other cases, we do a lot of work in the call center space as well. Did you have any focus when you first started? And you mentioned architects, but perhaps you started more broad and how did that evolve? In this business, as with most businesses, it's typical that in order to build up and get the sort of larger clients to trust you and, and believe that you could provide a good service to them, you sort of need to have done a lot of work with smaller relationships. It was definitely, I think from 1996 until 1990, late 99 was when we acquired our first large client, our first large exclusive client. Still a client today, so it's really nice. They've stayed with us the entire time. It's a consortium of colleges in the Boston area. And the reason we were able to secure that business and win that business was we had a previous client go to the consortium and then the consortium was bidding out their work and they said, oh, you need to include PSG. And lo and behold, we were fortunate enough that they decided to select us. And then sort of builds. It's like, okay, you've got the credibility of working with a client who maybe needs to spend $750,000 a year or a million dollars a year, which then gets you in the ball game to be able to credibly present for business. It's maybe a million and a half to two million. And then it sort of just goes up from there. So it was sort of, like as I said before, one step after the one, at least that was the way we did it. I'm sure there's probably other ways and people have had other experiences, but for us, it was just sort of keep building up one year after the other on the past successes and the track record. We don't tend to go and sell to everybody or we're not constantly trying to bring in tons and tons of new business. We work really hard to make sure that the clients that rely on us can rely on us and the, the service is consistently improved year after year. And then that typically allows us these days to sort of our new pieces of business within our existing clients. And that's sort of that custom staffing program thing where we're big enough to provide a volume of services, but small enough to sort of say, all right, we're not going in and saying, hey, here's our cookie cutter approach. Do you want it or not? It's more what are your problems and what are your needs and how can we help you solve some of those problems? So it sounds like then today, what you're required to grow is you just need more employees to service the existing customer demand. So then what was it like early on when perhaps that customer demand wasn't there? How did that balance change over time? That's a good point, right? I mean, the recruiting industry is a double-sided marketplace. We had a double-sided market before things like eBay existed and stuff like that. So in the late 90s in Boston, there was no shortage of customers. There was a lot of hiring going on. The economy was really strong. So started the business at a period of time where it was like just in incredible demand. There wasn't necessarily incredible demand for brand new staffing companies that hadn't done this before, but there was certainly incredible demand for hiring. And we were able to take advantage of that. The business in the early days grew like crazy. I think the first year, which was a partial year in 1996, we did a little over 200,000 in revenue. And then the next year, I think it was 1.7. The year after that, 3.8. The year after that, it was, I think, mid sevens. And then we hit 12 million. And then we ran into this brick wall of the dot-com bust at the time. And it was like, I learned a lot of lessons from that. But yeah, so the demand was consistently increasing in the late 90s. There was a little bit of a blip. And I didn't really know what was happening at the time. But I think that the financial, there was some like a currency crisis. 
something was happening in the Asian markets in like 98. I forget exactly what it was, but that sort of caused like a little bit of like a stall in the economy. And we definitely felt it at the time. We, I don't really know what we were doing wrong. And it actually sort of spurred us on to coming up with some new marketing campaigns that worked out well. I think at the time we decided to put together baskets of food and some wine and drop them off at maybe 30 or 40 different key clients and with a little note that said, we know staffing's never a picnic. And it kind of got a bunch of people to call us back and say, thank you and give us some opportunity. So it was, that first piece of adversity definitely turned into a really great marketing strategy that worked well. But yeah, so the challenge in the late 90s was finding people. And there weren't all the tools that we have today where you can go and sort of figure out how to find people online and do content or even post job ads. Back then it was the newspapers. So it was like you sort of got to spend your money, in my case, with the Boston Globe. And it was just a question how much you wanted to spend and how effective your ad writing was. But you didn't get to, at least for the industries that we served, you didn't get to sort of, there weren't the incredible amount of tools that, that are available today. So it definitely was a, a situation of like, all right, like how do I take this opportunity on Sunday when the newspaper comes out to get as much as I can get going. So cause us to do stuff like open on Sundays. So if people wanted to call in, they could call in and get a live person instead of waiting for everybody else to kind of get to the office on Monday. So we always were trying to do things that kind of got us either the best candidates first, or if we weren't able to get it first, maybe now we're able to be the most responsive through utilizing software and, and some other things like that. How closely tied is staffing to the economy? Pretty closely. I mentioned earlier that when we were talking sort of in the warm-up, I was chairman of the American Staffing Association and part of the board of directors, a member of the board of directors there for, I think, about nine years. And back when I was on the board, we sponsored some research as a trade organization that the theory was the staffing industry was a leading indicator of the economy. And what we found at that time was that actually that's not true. It's a concurring indicator of what's going on in the economy. So generally speaking, the staffing industry is pretty tied to the economy itself. But when you ask that question, it's like, well, what economy? So if you're in healthcare staffing, you're tied to probably what's happening in the world of healthcare, not so the broader economy. But generally speaking, for the businesses I'm involved in, they tend to be pretty cyclical with the economy, except for when you sort of create your own recessions by making mistakes. Those things sometimes get handed up to you by what's going on in the world. And sometimes they get handed to you because you made a mistake and it looks like a recession, even though it wasn't one outside. Do you have a few examples of those types of mistakes that looked like many recessions within your business? It's probably less a specific, oh, wow, we sort of went left and we should have gone right. And it probably has a little bit more to do with my trajectory as a CEO, but also being involved in other businesses as a board member and investor. So I think sort of potentially maybe getting a little bit unfocused is probably the, and thinking about putting time into other businesses that I've been involved in probably was without necessarily backfilling my own role as effectively as I could or should have is probably the biggest mistake. I think, I think when you and I were talking, when we first met, I talked about the story basically about like, I lead this business. I'm here day to day. So as I started putting time into other things and being involved in other businesses, I should have figured out a way to replace myself, but here we are. Not a bad outcome, but that I think would have helped along the way of really making sure that there was a solid management team that allowed me to maybe get to a board level, even within this company, within PSG. Speaking of delegation, you must have been really good at it in the early days, growing that quickly in the late 90s into the 2000s. How did you make sure your role kept evolving and you made sure that you were delegating as you scaled? I 
wish that back then I had that sort of fully formed thought that you just described with the way you just described it, where it's like, oh, I need to delegate, like, and we need to grow. And how do we grow into this management structure? Or how do we build a management structure that we can grow into? It was definitely a lot less sophisticated than that. I was really fortunate. There was just a great, the company was really attractive to people. And I think there was a great energy in the business. So in a lot of cases, as we were interviewing people for placement, people would be like, oh, you guys hiring here? Can I work here? It just through that process ended up really attracting a great team that probably less than delegating and more than just sort of like worked really hard and muscled things through. We used to get started at seven in the morning and six o'clock at night would roll around and then we just like passed out the menus like to order delivery or whatever, because there still wasn't that online. It was like we called the delivery company and we got dinner for everybody and around seven or eight o'clock at night, people started to head out and we just sort of rinsed and repeat and did it the next day. So it wasn't necessarily a, like a process of delegating. I think it was more, I think what I did well was motivate and energize a team and also had built a really strong culture at a time when I didn't understand exactly what culture was, but I did. And that's actually, you asked me for a mistake that caused a recession earlier. I'll go back to that. It was probably underestimating the importance of culture and overestimating the value of hiring outside experienced people without necessarily focusing on the culture part. So it was like, oh, this person's got this experience. Maybe at a larger company, they'd be great at PSG because we need to learn from them and things like that. And what ended up happening, and I probably repeated this mistake a couple of times, where it was like where there wasn't that culture fit and there wasn't as much alignment. And therefore the experience was kind of, it wasn't as valuable as I thought it was going to be. And then it just sort of just caused some cultural problems that put the brakes on some growth. That didn't start to happen until... Probably, I think we started feeling it in late 2000 and then going into 2001 and then 2002. And then it happened again, probably in 2003 or four, having sort of had that same issue. And I think I probably learned the lesson half a dozen times now in my career. So I guess maybe, I don't know if that means I learned it or I just keep experiencing it, but that's definitely one of the things that I would take away from my experience as a business person. It's just that having an aligned culture and a cohesive team is pretty much I think the best secret weapon in business and not having that, it almost doesn't matter how hard you try. It just feels like you're kind of running through mud. So when you started to feel that hiring was becoming a little off, how did you make sure to bring the business back on track? What did you do? Tough decisions, unfortunately, at the time. Most of those situations where there had been cultural issues ended up in parting a company with the person, with the employee. And it just over time became, it was sort of like, all right, like, this is really hurting the business. Even though this person might be really good at what they do, it's hurting the business because of the cultural implications. And obviously, I think over the years, I've gotten a lot better at talking to people early when I saw that stuff start to happen and at least explaining, hey, this is what's happening and this is what it takes to work here at this company. In the early days, I, was, I probably wasn't as cognizant of it and was probably, frankly, more made myself a little bit miserable and tried really hard to like make it work as opposed to saying, hey, here are the standards and here's what it takes to work here. And we want you to stay and be successful and here's what you need to do. If I could go back 20 years and tell my young self what my current self knows, that would definitely be the thing I'd insert in my brain, like Inception or something. (laughs) Yeah, that'd be nice to be able to do that. It really would. (laughs) So then what traits do you look for when you hire for new folks? Each of the companies that I'm involved in and the CEO and I lead the organization here at PSG. And then I'm also involved in another four recruiting businesses, and then also a transportation company, a business that 
but we transport kids to school, not yellow buses, but more sort of individual transportation for kids that are, have either become homeless or are in a foster program. Each of those businesses has its own values. And I think generally speaking, most of the businesses I'm involved in, if not all, sort of share some common values across the spectrum. But since we're talking about professional staffing group or PSG, so for us, it's, we have three values. They've been the same for, gosh, 20-something years at this point. Um, it was kind of neat to have kind of created these values early on and then probably before I even understood exactly what they meant. And then still to this day, they're the same ones. And I think it's a lot of sort of like what I internalize as a person. But diligent teamwork is one of our values, which is this sort of mashup of working really hard, but also working as a team and working hard to be part of a team, a good team, because I think good teamwork is really difficult development of people. So there's always sort of been this like growth and learning aspect of what sort of gets me excited about coming to work and working with people. It's one of the more fulfilling parts of what I've been able to do as a CEO is sort of have people that kind of, I don't know, grow and develop throughout their career and build their life around this little business of mine that, I, that I'm a part of. And then the last piece is fun. I just think it's, as I always like to say, it's like, take your job seriously, just don't take yourself so seriously. And I think that those three traits tend to be pretty common in the other businesses that I'm involved in as well. And I think just sort of like from an internal, like I fit in this, it's that when those things exist, I tend to fit really well. If some of those things don't exist, then it tends to not be a great culture fit for me. And when it comes to teamwork, we do a lot of work with some of the material created by Pat Lencioni. So The Five Dysfunctions of a Team is a book that's sort of thought of as like a standard around teamwork. And he's sort of updated the material since then. The Ideal Team Player, I think, is a more recent book. And you know, we, we really work hard to try to find people that are team-oriented. That's not the only success sort of trait that a business would have. There's plenty of businesses where teamwork isn't necessarily even important, but in, in at least as a staffing business, it's definitely a team-based business, at least the way I experience it. How do you evaluate someone's ability to work in a team? As someone who's in the staffing industry, you think, gosh, like you've been doing this forever. You're probably really good at interviewing and hiring people. And I think I am for clients, but for myself, there's a certain less when you're interviewing and evaluating somebody for a client, you're really trying to figure out, are they going to fit with your client? When you're interviewing and evaluating someone for your own team, there's definitely the aspect of like, you can have chemistry and start to fall in love. So it can be sort of like, oh, well, I really like the person or I connect with that person. So for us, we follow the material that's produced in a book called Who. It's by Jeff Smart. And we've put some of our people through the training that top grading is sort of like a side-by-side module with Who. We basically build out what attributes we look for in a person. So that attribute of sort of wanting to be part of a team and working effectively as part of a team. And then we just sort of build our questions based on the material that was produced in, yeah, in, the, in the book Who. The longer you and I talk, the more sort of like books I'll talk about that were meaningful to me. But I sort of personally work really well. Once somebody creates a model, I'm like, okay, I think this model doesn't fit that doesn't work for me, this model does fit. And then it's like, hey, someone else has already done all the thinking here. So why don't we put our thinking into how to execute it as opposed to take something that's a pretty good idea and make it perfect. So we use the material in Who to uncover whether or not someone will be part of a team. We don't tend to do stuff like, oh, we want an athlete, someone who had been an athlete in school or something like that, because they must, in many cases, it, it, I don't know, some companies sort of look for that as a trait. Like it's not, we don't necessarily look as much at the things you've done, but like why you've done them and how well you've done them and how you've interacted with 
colleagues and with other people. And when you speak to somebody, if you really pay attention to the clues, I mean, in many cases, just simply saying we versus I, if you're talking to somebody, can tend to be a good indicator. If, if someone's an I person, I did this, I did that, I was successful with this, they tend to be less team-oriented. And then as opposed to more of someone who's like, we, we accomplished this, and it almost you have to work hard to like untangle what the person did from what the team did because they're just so interested in how the team was successful. So those are some of the things that as you're talking to people, you, you can notice. But that sort of idea of identifying attributes that you're looking for in a person and building questions that sort of discern whether those attributes are there or not is, is sort of the way we interview anyway. Is there any book or model that helped you begin to delegate parts of your role as, as CEO as your company grew and there's pieces you had to start to let go of and you had to build a close team around yourself as CEO? Is there any book or model that helped you do that? If you sort of follow the Pat Lencioni kind of trajectory of books, and it's funny, here we're recording and he asked me to have the recording device on, on a set of books. And as I'm, I'm actually looking at a whole bunch of business books right here in front of me, that it's sort of like an interesting trip down memory lane. So there's a book called The Four Obsessions of an Extraordinary Executive that really helped me understand. And one thing I really like about Patrick Lencioni's books is that the book starts out and it's usually like there's like a fable <laughs> that sort of like describes a bunch of characters that show up in the various books that he's written that are all about modeling the behavior of the concept that he's trying to communicate. And then once you've read the fable, then you read the model after that. So the four obsessions of extraordinary executive is, is really a lot about team building and buy-in and creating buy-in. So you talked about delegating. I think the first step in delegating is making sure that there's a shared view of what needs to get done. And oftentimes people, when you've got a strong team, it's not necessarily you delegating. It's more somebody saying, hey, I, I could do this, or let me take this off your plate, or give me a shot at working on this. I think it'd be an interesting exercise for myself. I think I did a good job of creating an environment where people wanted to grow and therefore like were more taking from me as opposed to, I think, delegating. You could certainly make it like, oh, I need to give this task to somebody else, or I need to delegate this responsibility to somebody else. In my case, it was probably more creating the right environment where people took things from me and then creating a structure to make sure that, that things were done effectively without necessarily meddling with the person, which for people I'm in business with, they'll laugh when they hear me saying this because I tend to sometimes be too much of a meddler. What do you think you meddle too much in? I think I'm better at it now, but I think over the years, I like execution so much and I like being a part of getting things done that I sometimes, I think I, as a board member, needed to be able to feel comfortable saying, here's my viewpoint, you need to take with it and do what you will, as opposed to feeling like I needed to be a part. Like for me, it's like, oh, this is an idea, let's go put it into action, which I think has made me really good at startups over the years, but not necessarily as good at working with more senior people who kind of wanted the running room and the runway. And so, like, you know, fortunately, I've got good, strong-willed, outspoken partners I'm involved in who are like, hey, Aaron, you're too involved in this, like step back. Or in some cases, you can feel almost like there's like a grinding or something in, in the relationship. And fortunately, I've, like I said, I've been involved with, with some really good people who having that open communication is something that's pretty, I remember one time I called up a business partner. I was like, I feel like I'm driving you crazy. Like, can we get together and have dinner? Because like, I just, you know, this relationship's really important to me and I feel like I'm driving you nuts. But I think it's definitely that like, I like to see ideas get put into action that I think causes me to meddle a bit more maybe than I should. 
I also think I'm not as clear as I need to be sometimes. And it's like in my head, like the conversation that I just had in my head and the one I just had with that person are two different conversations. So that's something I'm learning to be better at, but definitely is a challenge for me because there's definitely, like I said, a different conversation up here than what's taking place between me and the other person. Yeah, certainly. That can be definitely a big challenge. As the company has grown, how have you spent your time differently? Not just in the business, but outside the business too. One thing that's been really neat for me is, so I'm involved in a company, this professional staffing group or PSG that's in Boston, but there's another business I'm involved in called PSG Global Solutions. So PSG Global Solutions is an outsourcing company where we provide recruiting support services to large sort of corporate employers, Fortune 500, or actually we think we've got Fortune, even some Fortune 10 clients. And then we also provide recruiting support to the staffing industry. And that business is based in Manila in the Philippines. There's currently experiencing a typhoon, actually. So all of our staff is not only not able to go to the office because of COVID, but they're also now losing their power, which is really hard on the team. But one of the things that's been great about that business over the years is just this opportunity to travel. So in 2006, I started, I got involved in, in that business and took my first trip to the Philippines. So like, that's been something that sort of travel has been a way I've, I've spent my time. I've been fortunate in that I could kind of blend them. So if I go to Manila for two or three weeks, I used to go two weeks a quarter. I was like, all right, go to work in the Philippines, work nights because we were U.S. facing. So we had to be working the same time schedule as, as the people in the, well, the U.S. are. And then weekends would be like, go to Hong Kong or go to Bangkok or spend some time in some of the islands in Thailand. So it was nice to be able to have that sort of like the business and personal sync up. That has been really cool for me. And I've, you know, to this day, I love just getting on a plane. I don't care if it's like go to someplace outside the country for a weekend or whatever. It's like, it never, it doesn't bother me at all. And I actually really enjoy it. In fact, some of the best time I've ever had has been in an airplane sort of solo and just kind of 14 hour flight or something like that. And it's like, gosh, I can sleep for seven hours and I can think for seven hours. And it's just sort of like a great way to recharge. And it was some pretty neat downtime for myself, especially before they had international Wi-Fi and you just kind of like were disconnected and it was, I don't know, it was a really nice reprieve. So love that. And I've probably gotten more into like electronic dance music over the years as well. So that's sort of a little hobby of mine where I like to be able to go and enjoy going to like an outdoor like music festival or something like that. Like I currently one of the oldest people that tends to show up at those, but it's sort of, I don't know, it's just kind of keeps you feeling young and really neat. I've been going to Miami Ultra for, I think, maybe seven or eight years or something like that now in a row. And there's one couple that's older than me that I like see every year <laughs> when I go there. So it's kind of a, that's been a fun thing to do as well. And it kind of also blend that with the travel. It's been pretty neat. What would you say is your most memorable travel experience? Something that you still think about today? Well, the first time I went to the Philippines was definitely memorable. My business partner, Mike and I, we wanted to get involved in this thing called offshore outsourcing. And Barely even understood exactly why or how, but we felt like it was part of, I felt like it was part of the staffing. It felt to me like an add-on to staffing, meaning we provided temporary employees to companies, we provided full-time permanent employees to companies, and then there was another way to get work done, which was outsourcing. So we wanted to go visit some potential partners in the Philippines and kind of figure out how to like go hire people over there to, to come work at the company and then be able to provide those services back to US-based companies. So, but I definitely had never been to Asia at that point. And the Philippines to me was like this, like I 
probably couldn't have found it on a map before I started, before we started doing work there and got on a plane. So Mike and I booked tickets to go to the Philippines. We started out in this town called Cebu, which is about maybe an hour flight south of Manila. It's on a different island. You can't drive there. Anyway, we're like looking things up on the internet and it's like, oh, it's on the State Department terrorism watch list. And it's like well, advisory about traveling. I'm like, what the heck are we doing? Almost like kid from Boston that like had never been to Asia before. And, you know, Mike, well, we didn't know each other growing up, grew up probably two towns over from me. And like, so it was like, all right, we got on the plane and, and traveled over there. We were pretty nervous. We actually only planned to spend, I think, two nights in the Philippines. So it's like we're traveling with 24 hour flight. We missed our connection in Tokyo. So we went Boston to New York, New York to Tokyo, got off the plane in Tokyo. We were late taking off from New York and we're like, realized we weren't going to, we knew sort of coming in, we weren't going to make the plane. And so we were talking to the people at Japan Airlines you know, about rerouting and we're like, well, hey, like, could we just go to Manila then instead of Cebu? The person we were talking to was like, no, it's not safe there. You'll be getting out at midnight, which only added to the anxiety. So come to find out, it's actually feels super safe when you're in the Philippines. There's no reason it felt that way at all. It was really, really comfortable there. So, but that was a pretty big eye opener where it's like, you look up stuff online and do your research and it says one thing and the government says, be careful. And it was like, you show up and it's like, everyone's like, come to my house. And we want to see, you know, it's like, we want to cook for you. We want to show you our beaches and things like that. So that was definitely a memorable trip. Then met my girlfriend at the time over in Tokyo. And after that for another two days and then flew home. So it was like this like barnstorming, storming trip to the Philippines for no reason whatsoever. It was, like I said, I had a sort of a small worldview at that point in time. Now it's much, much bigger, but that to me, was like a real transitional time for me. It was definitely an eye-opener because what I thought what I was about to experience and what actually happened could not have been more different. That's a trip I really enjoyed, and you know, both from a business and personal perspective. I still remember eating dinner in Tokyo. And it was like, we had just woken up because we were, I was sleeping days and like, went to dinner. And it was just like this weird, like falling asleep because it was night out, but like being wide awake. I don't know. The whole sort of like changing 12 or 13 time zones was definitely very painful to, to go through at once. But it was a you know, that sort of eye-opening experience and being able to learn like just, just sort of how wrong you can be, <laughs> even if you do your research, versus what real life actually is. But So I'd say that was a pretty pivotal trip. And I've had some really enjoyable times in Spain as well. I really like traveling to Spain. I've probably been there, I don't know, six or seven times at this point. Do you have business in Spain? We do support one client with operations in Spain. In fact, we just did a nice project, hiring project for them in Barcelona. We're just wrapping it up. But yeah, no, that's one area. There's business in Asia and then really US-based stuff other than the global support we do for clients when needed. So what do you think you're going to do with your time in five to 10 years from now that you aren't doing today? I don't think anything. Maybe that sounds like a lame... Like I, I think I mentioned earlier, I'm about to turn 52. So as I was going through my late 40s, I was getting to a point where, I don't know, like, I feel like it's like the way I sort of had thought about my life was this sort of like, oh, like I'll work really hard, build great businesses, and then at some point in time, retire and then go do something else. And that something else was always like the thing that I was sort of like the carrot I was chasing. And then in my late 40s, I found out that whatever sort of outside interest I wanted to develop, I was probably like not that good at developing them. And so I was like, kind of got to a point where I was like, gosh, like what was I put on this world to do? And 
realized I just really love working and building teams and working with people and being involved in businesses and partners and things like that. And so I hope five to 10 years, I'm still doing the exact same thing because I don't know, I feel like I went through this period of time where it was like trying to figure out how to be retired. And I'm like, wait, I actually don't want to be. <laughs> I love working and sort of like the structure and the rigor around having a business that needs my attention and being able to, like I said, be involved in with other people. If you sort of put a gun to my head and force me to answer the question five to 10, I, I hope I'm doing more mentoring and helping others to be able to experience and, and achieve what I have. But that's more of the same, probably not different than the same, but that's really, those are the things. I don't know. It was sort of a neat realization about a year ago where I was like, wait, I really like doing this. And like, like I don't need to go find something else to do. I just want to do this. And, and once I did that, it was sort of like such a weight that came off of my shoulders of like trying to figure out like the next chapter. I was like, this chapter is just continuing and, and just might be in different ways because I'm probably less interested in working 15, 16 hour days, six or seven days a week, but more interested in figuring out how to do things in a really smart way and involving others and, and giving them a chance to experience some of the stuff that I did. But yeah, I was like, one of my biggest lessons in life is like, you don't need to figure out what's next if you love doing what you're doing right now. Yeah, that was definitely something that I was surprised by when I figured it out, but really happy that I figured it out as quickly as I did. Although it, at the time, it felt like it was a lot of a longer path to the back to that answer than I wish it had been, but it was fulfilling nonetheless now that I got there. I like it. Speaking of lessons, what college class would you teach if it could be about anything you wanted? I would love to teach a class on how to build your business during a recession. I think recessions are such an interesting time to go through. Sort of all the incredible amounts of anxiety and that you can face as a leader and the uncertainty. I mean, certainly now going through this sort of COVID world that we're in right now, it's like, there's no playbook. No one says, oh, when there's a pandemic, do these things. But sort of helping people understand the framework and how to think about challenges and problems and uncertainty and lead during uncertainty, I think is, would be a really neat. I'm not sure it fills up a whole semester, but it's probably been some of the most interesting times that I've been through. And I'd love a chance to kind of talk with people and teach people who aren't necessarily experiencing that now, but will at some point where they can go back and say, wow, that guy was talking about that. And he taught this class and this is what I learned from it. I think that'd be the class I teach. Like I said, it's probably one of the most impactful points in a business person's life. It's like when you're like sort of handed this like plate of uncertainty and there's less demand for your services. And it's like, how do you figure out what to do? And, but on the flip side, I think it's one of the more, I've always said, you make all your money during recessions. You just don't know it until afterwards. During the recessions, you might be losing money or breaking even for long periods of time, but all those decisions that you make, every little step you take at that point is what sets that company up for afterwards for where it will be. And I didn't realize it in recession one. I think I actually, no, I, I didn't realize it in recession one, but that's probably when I went through after the fact was when I realized that the business, like, it's like all, all these steps we took is exactly why we are where we are right now. But in each of the three recessions I've been in business during has sort of They've got a lot of similarities, but they definitely have got their own flavors to them. This one, especially with COVID. But yeah, certainly this one. This one's definitely an interesting lesson for your future class. It sure is. <laughs> What's a belief you used to hold fairly strongly that you've changed your mind on? It's actually what I was talking about before. I always thought as I was in my 20s and 30s and early 40s, like it's like 
you work really hard and then you must retire and then go do other things. If you'd asked me like how sure I was of that, I would have said 100%. And then all of a sudden, having gone through that experience myself, I'm just like, wait, like that's so wrong. There's nothing wrong with really enjoying work and sort of the benefits, not just financial, but also sort of physical and mental of staying fresh and relevant and feeling good about the, the things that I'm doing. So yeah, I think that's probably the most strongly held belief that I completely disagree with now. And I'm sure there are some other ones if I thought about it, but that one definitely was a pretty big eye opener for sure. Do you think there would have been any way to convince your younger self of that belief? Or do you think you just had to wait until you hit that moment where that switched? I don't think so. I mean, I'm definitely like a, the type of person that's like, I touch the stove, it's hot. And then I have to touch it one more time just to make sure it's really hot. As convincing and compelling as I think I can be, I don't think I could have convinced myself of that back then. I just, it was such a strong, it was just so sure that that was the path and those are the things and, and all that. What's the best business you've ever seen? It's a little bit of, I forget exactly which cognitive bias it is, but I think it's accessibility bias. First of all, it's like, I don't know, I feel like I have so much less exposure to things and these days because of sort of the limitations of COVID. But that transportation company I was talking about, it's called Assist Services. I have a partner in that business. I was sort of like the person that knows operations. And my partner, Tim, really knows business acquisition and understanding sort of how to evaluate the value of a business. So he had said, hey, I was, you know, I'm looking at this business. It's a really neat little company up in Portland, Oregon. And just like the purpose that that business, you said best, and I guess you can define best in, any, in a number of different ways. So for me, best is my brain went there when you asked the question. It's like the difference that we can make in a person's life. That business serves kids that are in situations where the federal government has said through this thing called the McKinney-Vento Act, they said, you have to train if a kid becomes homeless and moves out of a school district, you have to transport the kid back. The school district that they got transitioned out of needs to bring them back to create stability in their lives. And when we first evaluated the business, it was more on financial metrics and, and they were good. I mean, the, the person who founded the company had done a really great job and she had built a nice business and was ready to sort of transition and, and to someone who had the ability to scale it up, I think, beyond what she had done. But it was just this, this neat little company that was nicely profitable and had a great team. The more we got into it, the more Tim and I got into it, the more we're like, wow, like, like this business isn't about transporting kids to school. This business is about creating stability in a kid's life that's in a somewhat unstable situation at the time. And the ability to maybe where, and not only are we creating stability through getting them to their school district that they need to get to and providing that service at a good price, because getting them on a yellow bus is hard when they could be living in number of different places, maybe sometimes 40, 50 minutes away from their school. But the other thing that became apparent was that our drivers spend a couple hours, in some cases, a couple hours a day to and from, or maybe it's call it five hours a week. And by hiring the right people, we're one of the adults in, the, in that kid's life that spends the most time with them. And we are spending a significant chunk of that kid's time with our drivers and the fact that we can hire the right people and create a great experience for a kid that probably doesn't have a lot of great experiences. It's a really neat business. COVID has thrown it. Gosh, like there's such a you know, turmoil with it because kids aren't in school as much as they used to be. And kids are doing Zoom learning and things like that. And unfortunately for the kids that we serve, they're probably spending more time in places that they don't want to be or shouldn't be instead of in a school building where they are getting a lot of the services they need and the stability that they need in their life. But I've always been involved in businesses that have purposes, like the staffing industry. It's like we get people jobs. I mean, that's 
it may not be the most important thing in somebody's life, but it's pretty important. But that, that business in particular is, it really makes you feel good about the opportunity to have an impact and grow a neat little business as well. I totally agree. We had Jared on the show a few weeks ago. He was Oh, awesome. yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, so you got to speak to the CEO. <laughs> yeah, it was fun to hear about that business. It's definitely up in there in the best business category in its own right. It is for sure. And he's a really good guy. I don't know if he mentioned this, but I think Tim and I interviewed one person for the job. I mean, we did a lot of phone interviews. We did an in-person interview with one. And gosh, he was, Jared was just so spot on, both culturally as well as his past experience and what he wanted to do. And I was really fortunate to be in business with him. He's a good guy. Yeah, he is. I agree. I couldn't be happier that he did not win the governor's race in Arkansas. So it was so nice that he came in second place on that and therefore became available to work with us. <laughs> he probably views it slightly differently, but yeah. The, <laughs> hey, you know, maybe. We'll see. <laughs> that's for sure. That's for sure. Well, he still could have a political future if he wanted. He sure could. Yeah. Thank you, Aaron, for sharing your time with us today. This has been awesome. Really loved hearing about your journey so far and a little bit more about assists too. Those are both great businesses. Appreciate the opportunity to speak with you. Gosh, this hour went fast. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed the conversation today. If you enjoyed today's episode, please consider leaving us a review and telling a friend. I also want to thank our show's sponsors, Live Oak Bank, Hood and Strong, and Barrel for their support of the show. For full episode transcripts and more information, please visit our website at alexbridgman.com slash podcast. 